What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, this is your host, Ben Picolsi, bringing you the greatest guests and the greatest information on the planet to help you live your greatest life in a body you love. After a number of years, I found a company that I believe is putting out some of the highest quality products in the entire CBD space. The company that is now sponsoring the podcast is called NED. You guys may have heard of NED before, N-E-D. I've actually heard of NED probably for the last three or four years. I've tried their products way back in, gosh, probably 2018 now, and I did enjoy them, but I was still in the process of doing a significant amount of research. I didn't want to just dive right in and say, yeah, I love this product. And even though I love the branding and I love the mission behind the company, I, I love why the company was started, which I'll tell you about in due time. But what I most recently have discovered is their best practices behind sourcing and processing uh, their or 100% organic hemp is uh, nothing short of industry standard. So without more rambling for me, I wanted to just give you a little bit of an introduction into why Ned is now a official sponsor of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, because I do believe in their products. And uh, I've gone through my due diligence of reading as much as I can, not just about Ned, but as I say, 20 or 30 companies in the industry, actually probably more, which I realize is there's actually not that many producers in the country. There's a lot, obviously, but it's not that many that are the main production sources for most of the, whether hemp-derived or um, cannabis-derived CBD, CBN, and full-spectrum cannabinoids. So without further ado for me, I introduce Ned. You guys can check out Ned if you go over to helloned, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off. They've got an entire suite of highly vetted products, high quality products. And as I say, the, the very least I can tell you is that these are the highest quality products I've been able to find. So if you're someone who does enjoy CBD products derived from hemp, which means they're in the absence of THC, so no psychoactive effects whatsoever, just the benefits of ultimately decreasing inflammation, potentially improving sleep for some people. If you're someone who does love CBD and you love the benefits of CBD, this is a company that I highly suggest you check out. Head over to helloned.com. Use the code MUSCLE at checkout to get hooked up with 15% off. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Organifi. Organifi Gold, Green, Red, all of them should be in your cabinet. Uh, if you're going to choose one, gentlemen, I suggest you choose red. Ladies, I suggest you choose gold. And in general, everyone should be taking the green. So guys, the reason I suggest red, you guys have heard me. Uh, if you're going to, if something's going to take you out as a man, you got to, you got to li- go down the list <laughs> and say, what are the things that are going to take me out in life? It's going to be cancer. It's going to be heart attack, most likely, right? Or you're getting hit by a bus. So I want to, I want to make sure that I'm preventing those things. So every, certainly every month, we do some fasting that'll re- reduce the likelihood of cancer. Certainly every year, we do some ketogenic dieting that can reduce the risk of cancer. Now I'm not an expert, I'm not an expert in this, so don't take my advice, go ask your doctor, but this is how I approach it. And when it comes to cardiovascular health, I want to make sure that I'm getting enough uh, berries and red fruits and red vegetables and things that are improving my nitric oxide retention. So I want to think that I'm going to consume things that improve nitric oxide systems in the body. And reds from Organifi is one way that I do that on a consistent basis. I also eat a lot of beets. I also eat a lot of berries. Uh, I also take some citrulline, some arginine, things that improve pump. Ultimately, if it improves pump, it's improving your del- your your blood delivery to the muscles, to the penis, to whatever ultimately muscle you're trying to use in that moment. So that's a great thing for guys. Uh, I usually take this reds about once a day. 
sometimes pre-workout, sometimes post. On average, if you can default to one, take it post-workout, take two scoops post-workout and you're good. Um, as far as ladies, why I suggest the gold one, it tastes freaking awesome. And it's really great for chilling you out at night. So I know a lot of my female clients want some just to like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have a tea. Like what can I consume at night that tastes really great? And it's kind of like a dessert. So this is what I suggest to my ladies. Um, so instead of consuming, you know, your chocolate after dinner, or your dessert, go ahead and grab Organifi Gold and allow you simply to calm down. Uh, it's loaded with adaptogens, which allow your nervous system and your adrenals to work more effectively uh, and ultimately control your nervous system, control your blood sugar, allow you to sleep and calm down at the end of the day most effectively. So ladies and gents, head over to Organifi.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 20% off. Another sponsor of today's podcast is Bioptimizers. And the entire line of Bioptimizers products is available to you. You head to bioptimizers.com, but you can also head over to Kenergize, K, and then the word Energize, K E N E R G I Z E.com, and use the code Muscle10 to get hooked up with 10% off their amazing ketogenic fat adaptation product. Now, Kenergize specifically, or Capex specifically, has been designed to ultimately help with all levels of fat optimization. So that means if I'm consuming a high fat diet, whether it be keto or just a general high fat diet, it's going to help with digestion, absorption, absorption, and assimilation so that my body can effectively use fats. Using a high amount of fats in one diet or one meal and it worked in a day, sometimes very hard for your body. You can get some digestive distress. It can ultimately cause some bloating, some gas, some indigestion. And uh, Capex is a really great solution for that. Intentionality. And you guys have heard me talk about this before. But intentionality means when I'm going through hell, in this case, when I'm going through discomfort, when I'm, or, or let's say maybe more accurately, when I'm going through positions of weakness, uh, to not allow myself to cheat, to not allow my body to resort to its natural, ingrained, inborn tendency to make things easy. So in order for you to make maximum progress, you have to intentionally seek challenge. Unfortunately, guys, that's the truth. You can't do the easy path. You have to train your mind to seek challenge. If you sit back and just do what's easy, you do what's expedient, you do what you're good at, your progress will always be poor. This is where plateaus exist. I don't think plateaus are a real thing. I think plateaus only exist for people who don't know what they're doing. If you're always just simply moving the needle on the weakest link, if you just do that, your body progresses, right? Obviously, we want to train the strengths as well, but maybe we train the weakest links more often. And again, I'll get to this in the, in the programming part, but how do we kind of decide how much to do of each exercise. So this is in the ninth one today. So intentionality is really the frame of mind that you hold present in every workout. So what are you thinking about when you're training? Are you thinking about how hard this is? Are you thinking about getting it done? Are you thinking about doing three sets? I just got to get it done. I just got to get it done. Just grind through it. I'm just going to grip my teeth and grind through it. That's fucking stupid, right? It's like climbing a mountain and going, oh man, I just got to get to the top. No, idiot. The goal isn't to get to the top. The goal is to enjoy the process, look around you and, and embrace every step and, and just enjoy it. And when you get there, you float to the top, right? Maybe if you're in a race or something cool, then the, the goal is to get to the top. But every other day of your life, even if you're in training, the goal isn't to get to the top. The goal is to be better every step along the way. And to be better means a positive state of mind. To be better means an empowered state of mind, meaning I'm not a victim to it. The opposite of victimhood is empowerment. So that means if I'm a victim to it, oh, I have to do this. It's so terrible. I just want to get it done. Oh, this is awful. Which is like so many people 
train angry, get, get motivated. No guys, learn to love it. Like, fuck. Yeah, this is awesome. I crushed it today. I'm so focused. I'm so happy. I feel this so well. I'm enjoying this process. I'm challenging my body. My body shows up for me. Yes. This is what training is about, right? Yeah. I did a really good job today. My muscles really worked hard. They showed up. I got out of bed and these muscles contracted didn't even do anything. They heal themselves, right? Be grateful for this body they're given. That's really what this is about. This is about learning to love yourself, learning to, to change the victim mind to a mindset of empowerment. Listen, the body is not the goal. The body is a side effect of doing things correctly. If you do things well and you're committed to personal excellence in every single rep and every single set, the body is a byproduct. So stop setting the goal to build the body. Start setting a goal to win today's workout, to be the best you possibly can, to enjoy the process, to love every set, every rep, every movement, right? Every little nuance, every little thing, pay closer attention. That's another level of intentionality, isn't it? It's the ability to be present in every rep, right? How many of you train mindlessly? Put on some music, pull your hat over your eyes and just grit your teeth and get after it. Yeah, you're burning calories, there's no doubt, but you're absolutely not making the most of your workout. You're not. To make the most of your workout, make it a meditative experience. Make every inch of every rep more difficult. All of you sitting there at home, try this with me. Extend your arm, fully extend your arm. Could be up to the side, can be up down, down to the side, it doesn't matter. Now I want you to contract your bicep as hard as you possibly can, but you don't bend your arm, your arm stays straight. Contract your bicep as hard as you possibly can in that position. Squeeze harder. Now you should start to feel your biceps start to contract. And now you're squeezing so hard, your biceps almost, your elbow's starting to bend a little bit, isn't it? Okay, keep squeezing harder, but don't let the elbow bend. You want to resist that bend. And it's bending just a little bit because you're squeezing so hard. And now you're squeezing so hard, it's actually starting to bend. You kind of can't resist it. Keep squeezing, keep squeezing, keep squeezing. Now I'm almost like my elbow is all the way flexed. My forearm's touching my, my bicep. So it wasn't. I'm going to move this weight from point A to point B. And so I was going to contract this muscle as hard as I possibly can and actually try to make the muscle work as hard as I can at every millimeter of every rep. That's what exercise should be. You do that, it completely changes your life. Now, even just what we did right there, again, I could have drawn that out and make it way more dramatic and way more, uh, you could feel it a lot more. But what I want you guys to acknowledge is if you did that on every rep, you would fatigue really, really fast. Your ability to use weight would drop down short term, but your benefit would be much greater. You would feel it more. You would grow more. And here's the kicker. You're forced to be present. If you train that way, there's no way in hell that you're worrying about what you didn't do yesterday or what you have to do tomorrow or the stress of your partner or the stress of your business or your taxes or whatever, this bullshit that's going on in the world right now. Um, None of that can matter. It simply can't. Why? Because you're so focused on the single thing that you're focused on that's being present. And that's meditation. It's a meditative experience. Exercise should be a meditative experience. Every one of you should leave every workout as a better version of yourself because you're able to be more present, not only in your workouts, because then what happens in life? It transfers to everything you do. It transfers to your, your partner. It transfers to your business. It transfers to your children. It transfers to all those things. It transfers to how you engage with somebody on the road. I can be so much more intentional with how I choose my words, with how I react, with how I eat, with how I fuel my body, because I'm present in it, right? Where we get lost in life or where we get down a negative path is when things become mindless, isn't it? When how many of you guys will, uh, shaking your head, say, yeah, like, man, I, I eat mindlessly sometime. I just don't think about it. I just, I just realized, oh, shit, I was eating something. I don't want to do that. The mindlessness kicks up if you don't teach yourself, train yourself every day to be mind 
full. You can sit down in meditation for 40 to 60 minutes every day and train it too. And you could train in the gym. You're doing it anyways. So why not get the most out of it, right? And again, the best mat metaphor, and I've used it a thousand times, but don't sit down to read a book to get to the end of the book and tell everyone on Instagram that you, that you read a book and have no idea what was in the book, right? This is the reality of our society. Most people read a book to say that they read a book, but they didn't actually get the benefit of the book. Don't rush through the book. Fucking learn from the book. That's the same with exercise. Don't rush through the exercise to get to the end to tell people you trained or to even just to feel better about yourself. Like, yeah, when you're, when you're done that book, I feel like some, some superficial sense of accomplishment. When I feel that work, finish that workout, I feel some superficial sense of accomplishment. But when you look back on your body, like, you know what? I don't think I'm getting the results for the time that I invested. I don't think my body represents the time that I put in. Never feel that way? Yeah, it's because you're not doing things correctly. You're simply missing the boat. But ultimately, when someone's gait is impacted, if they're not swinging properly, if they're dragging their foot, or if they're, they're not taking off the toe properly, all of that is an indication of brain function. That's interesting. And also what came to mind there as, you know, people who are these hard heel strikers, which obviously is a result of walking mindlessly because you're used to wearing a big rubber sole and you don't have to pay attention to how you heel strike. What comes to mind is that that kind of, um, you know, uh, perturbation of the eyes or the, the vibration going on in the eyes, the brain, and ultimately the muscular system, I'm going to guess that's like way more sympathetically challenging to the nervous system, just because the brain's try, always just trying to kind of orient itself rather than being stable. So you can walking in and of itself could become a way more stressful event for someone who doesn't have good eye control, good neck control, ultimately good walking mechanics. Well, yeah, because in this example, heel strike will have a direct relationship with, with the vestibular system. And remember that anxiety, if we're going to talk about sympathetic stress, anxiety lives in the vestibular system. So if you feel unstable in your body, that is going to create stress. And uh, stress is never really a good thing. As we know, it actually has catabolic effect throughout the entire body and is probably the beginning of, of disease as well. So um, I don't want to over-dramatize, but what I'm proposing and what I'm suggesting is if we can use these tools to make someone more stable, to allow them to waste less energy, to make the most out of their heel strike so that they can have the best synchronicity as possible, then um, I'm, you know, I believe that the, the per some, someone's life, they would just be healthier and just would be much better off uh, as far as their posture or even their life, because what what we what we feel uh, has a direct impact on on our emotions and vice versa. Yeah. So one of the things I make all my guys do in the first thirty days is every day you're committed to walking for at least thirty minutes. And actually, I typically advise like, hey, let's go in some barefoot style shoes. Not because I'm I'm a zealot for barefoot style shoes, but what I think it makes them. Uh, forced to do is become aware of how they heel strike, right? So if we're wearing these big rubber heels, we just literally become mindless in how we walk. And as soon as you, you know, I usually advocate taking your shoes off and walking in the concrete, but people tend to get bruised heels from that. And to me, that's just like, well, think of evolutionarily, you wouldn't have had bruised heels because you would have been forced to actually pay attention to how you walk. Ultimately, if you would become stronger, also the musculature becomes stronger, the you may become, become more calloused. But ultimately, 
what I advocate is like, hey, go pay attention. It becomes almost meditative, forcing you to become present in this moment. And as we all know, most humans in, in modern society are anything but present in the daily moment, in, in this exact moment. So it almost becomes this meditative walking experience where they can literally learn to softly heel strike, roll through the forefoot, push off the big toe, and start to reignite and reestablish gait cycle, reestablish musculature through the feet, and then hopefully take away some of that, that vibration happening up through the head, neck, and jaw. And yeah, I love the way you explained that. And what I'd like to add to that is, because uh, you were talking before at, at the intro, how the formation of the arch is a direct um, a projection of, of muscle tone. So muscle tone comes from the brain. If you have good synergy between the flexors and the extensors, if you've integrated your reflexes, if you're partially balanced, then you should have a properly, properly developed arch. So looking at someone's arch is actually really important because it's, it's, how can I say, it's like the spring of the body, right? You should be able to absorb chalk through the arch. And some of the links also that we've made into that online certification are the links between your feet and your sagittal plane. So in other words, when looking at, at you from the side, depending on whether or not your body, your um, upper body is in front of your glutes or behind your glutes, or if it's properly aligned, yes, the jaw does play a role in that. But now we're looking at how the foot can actually create an imbalance in the sagittal plane. So we've kind of come up with, um, I like to call them Bibles uh, of the foot, which you have this type of foot posture, you'll have this type of sagittal plane and so on and so forth. And, and then you're able to intervene by working on the foot. You can have an effect on the upper body. So that's really great when you start to understand that if in your training programs or if, if you're you know, looking to, to gain some mass on your upper body, if you can use the foot to help you, um, to help you gain those results. And that's just an additional, again, an additional co component, uh, for you to have in your toolbox. So for the listener, if you don't know what the sagittal plane is, if you're, if you're standing right now, just roll back under your heels and then roll back onto your toes. And that's kind of moving in the sagittal plane, right? Yeah, exactly. So for example, rounded shoulders, I'll just give you a very quick example rounded shoulders, um, which is, you know, when you kind of have like that kyphotic posture, that's kind of starting, um, you'll notice that with uh, someone who has a poor arch, so really flat feet or not a lot of, of, you know, of, of, uh, arch, um, uh, development there, that's going to have a direct implication with your, with your upper body. And it has to do with the biomechanics of the legs and, and the sacral angle that starts to change, which goes all the way up to the kinetic chain. How important is load in motor learning? So, cause like going through the, going through the motion without resistance is so different. And I'm curious in your experience, you know, what percentage of load, there's some data on that that I've seen, but I'm curious in your experience. You can't do percentages of load because you have to do a one rep max first and you haven't motor learned it yet. Yeah. Well, so maybe That's it's a complete hypocrisy effort. So it's like 65 to 70% of perceived, perceived effort. You know, the numbers don't matter. The bottom line is yeah. what can you do appropriately? And every time, every time you add load or speed, there's a new motor learning process. Now it's probably abbreviated because the better you are. And another interesting thing there, I, I seem to see in some people, there's a lot of qualifiers there. When they get pretty good at one thing, they're better at motor learning something that's even unrelated because they start to break it down. They start to have a little bit of a process inside of them. Even if it's comparing a bench press to a squat, those are largely unrelated, except that when I learn to control and separate, well, what's supposed to move, what's not, I get to take that new awareness over there and then apply it immediately to a different chunk of the body. 
So there's a bre- an abbreviated process there. But to me, everything, I completely aborted numbers when I actually started getting good because it is entirely based upon what this person, someone go, how many reps am I going to do? I said, I don't know. We'll find out. Reps are a historical record. They're not a prediction of the future. So I can change how hard you're thinking. To your point, I can change how hard you're thinking. And you got 15 reps last time. We're going to get seven this time. So, so my question was, um, <laughs> what, should, what should they be thinking about and how do they know they're doing it right? Um, during, a, during a rep mm-hmm. set, whatever. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning, I don't. And by the way, everybody out there is a beginner on some level. That's an important piece of martial arts that got lost when it all came to this country. But um, they need to be paying attention to progressively evolving their form. Because form has to come like the sprinter. Form has to come before effort. Form has to come before load. There is no power lifter at Louis Simmons Westside Barbell who has shit form while bench pressing 700 pounds. It would not end well. So if you want to get to where you think you want to go, you got to do your homework. You got to lay a foundation. Everything's based upon a foundation. Yet at the same time, as they feel like, man, I'm pretty controlled here. Now take it out for a ride. And you know what I mean by that, by that phrase, listen, you're never going to know your, how good, good your form is, which by the way, can almost always improve until you take it out for a ride. Try a little bit more weight. Try to go to, to that one more rep. Try to do a forced rep, but don't lose it because that's when people lose it. I mean, you're going to need a spotter or something unless you're on a machine and you just slam it down or control it down either way. But, you know, when you start getting to where you're struggling, that's when people blow it. That's when you know you have good form. When you don't waver, I don't care if it's coming back down on me. I hopefully plan for that ahead of time, but that's good form when you do not allow your bread, your brain to abort. So there's something to look for, but that's a little bit down the road. And most people that are out there throwing around weights are maybe going to think, well, I've been doing this again. I've been doing this for 10 or 20 years. So I just need to start doing what Ben and Tom are talking about and I'll be fine. Yeah, but you have to back up. There's a kid named John Bleaver, a kid. We were kids back in the beginning, but a guy named John Bleavernick who would, uh, when he lectured, it was just the most brilliant thing. And I asked him one time, do you remember this? He didn't remember saying it. So I'm glad I wrote it down. But he said, if you're going to progress in one area or one thing, you probably have to regress in something else. So for example, if I was going to go up and load, I very likely would shave off the weaker, more severe end of the range. If I was going to go up on a bench press, I might not try to get to the same range. But when I get controlled through the range, I can control it. I'll add that range back in there. You follow me? So, you know, it's like, it's like um, anything. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to go up and wait and take this thing out for a ride, I might back off of a couple other things because my point of progression has become the priority. And then I can throw those things back in there and get back to where we were, but with a new load. So that's a really masterful thing. He said there that he doesn't remember, I guess I could take credit for it, but then I'd be like all those social media guys. So I'm going to give him credit. Um, yeah. So, and I, I got to tell you, I, I feel like as much as they're necessary, words are cheap because there is nothing I can say. Everything I'm saying, I have a video in my head of an experience or a hundred experiences. And I'm running through those in my head when I'm answering questions or trying to come up with a statement. And everybody out there is listening to words. They're not seeing a video in their head and they're certainly not seeing mine. That's why live, live classes are just the most important thing. Cause I can actually, someone can come and go, I've, I've watched everything you've ever done. And they'll lay down on a bench and I'm like, are you sure? I don't see any evidence of it because words are tough to turn into to physical reality, you know? Well, and, and application, right? So there's so many coaches yeah. out there who, who are theoretical and zero practice. And 
I honestly, like, without the amount of practical experience I've put into it, I, I wouldn't have any idea of the stuff you're talking about. Because when you speak it, I hear it, I intellectualize it, but I don't understand it until I go and apply it. And I'm like, oh, I see where this applies. And I create my own kind of conclusions and like applications. And without without actually taking in where the rubber meets the road, it, it's almost, in my mind, it's almost impossible to actually truly get it. Well, it is. And, and sometimes the best answers or the best attempt at making it practical, if I say something or ask a question to a class, if they try to answer it, it's never going to end well. The one thing that I was always taught in school was you never answer a question with a question. And those teachers simply didn't want to be questioned because the most important answer is a question because you need to clarify, is this what you mean? Help me see what you're saying. Because now you can start to build an image, start to build a picture or walk into the gym a little better. If the points that are confusing to you of what I said, we go back and clarify. So coming back at me with a question when I make a statement or a question is the single most valuable thing for you to come up with an answer for you or for you to take it into live practical use. I think that's like literally the perfect metaphor, right? Most guys are rolling around with, the, with their emergency brake on and trying to hit the gas pedal and they're just not going anywhere. And, and they're revving the engine, they're, they're burning hot and they're not sure what's going on and they're spinning their wheels. That's literally the perfect metaphor. So what are the typical things that you're working on to start removing those brakes? I know we talked about a few before we started recording, but what maybe you have a list of things that are typical. Yeah. So as I started to, we have to understand physiology is uh, a, a stepward progression from complexity. So if you start at your DNA, you know, DNA then goes in to make molecules and molecules make cells, cells make tissue, tissue make organs, organs make organ systems and that's you. Okay, fantastic. Well, what we have to do is try to capture where are your brakes being applied. So if we go all the way down to the bottom and we look at the DNA and your genes, there are potential breaks that could be happening there. So various DNA polymorphisms and everything else. Well, I can't change you there. So we might look at that, especially if we have some indication that something's going on. But for the most part, we don't spend a lot of energy there because you can't do shit about it. Right? It's, this is not something that's a huge deal. So same thing kind of as you move from the molecule all the way up, it's tough to change. So we really try to spend our attention on what are the things that are the easiest to change that have the biggest impact. So from the, the, the visible stressor side, uh, a big category is emotional and psychological processing. And so we are certainly not experts in that. We don't deal with PTSD or trauma or things like that. But there are some evidence-based, science-based questionnaires you can use. And there are some other ones that I have uh, borrowed from world-leading sports psychologists. And we run folks through these questionnaires. And if we see anything pop up, then we're going to push them, whether it be to a sports psychologist or a therapist. Or um, I even had one individual just this week, professional athlete, who it's one of the first person people I've identified in our group that I said, I think you are really a strong candidate for psychedelic. Uh, physical, really? yeah, absolutely. Um, what what made that stand out to you? Like, what was the, what 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 was it about them? Yeah, it was actually a combination of a lot of things, but it was extreme trauma in an area in which I don't think many humans could understand or sympathize with. Um, it was some long, and it was a. I'd say it's a, it was a, it's a cycle, but the physiology was good. 
And so once the physiology is there to support it, it's like, I think you need just something that'll smack you in the face. And it's just like, we need a perspective change. We need a shift change, a really hard, really aggressive shift change. And I think that's going to be combined then, of course, with ongoing work with a professional. That's different than someone who's been depressed their whole life and just dealt with kind of all of these things. Like you just have a lot of work. I think you have to do. I'm out of my area here, but this individual is just like, Hey, you just had some really crazy shit happen. Um, we're kind of in a spiral right now. I think we should just hit the brakes to just pop out of the system. I think that's going to be really helpful. Hmm. There's more to it than that, but I'm trying to say as top level as I can there. Um, so that's one part of it. And I started there because that's, again, that's not our area of interest. I think we can have more conversation about the area that I'm more versed in. Um, so outside of that, we're looking for things like physical stress. So this is basic training program. Is it appropriate? Is it well-rounded? Is it hitting all the physiological needs uh, that you need to participate in your sport as well as to have a, an appropriate physiology? Um, hydration. So there's some really cool tech that, that we have that we can really real-time data on hydration content as well. So are we optimizing? In fact, we had this this week um, with an individual who's the number one player in the world in his sport. And uh, we just changed some salt things on the day of competition and just the physiology numbers just took off and performance took off. So that is a big uh, thing you can play with. And it's just one of those topics that people are just like, oh yeah, drink more water. And everyone says it, but then no one really talks like about what specifically to do. And then no one executes it. So it's a huge lever if you actually do the shit, <laughs> you do it right. You know, just like right. just drink water. And, um, and then from there, it's diet guessing. quality. Exactly. Like we don't guess. I, the folks I work with, like we do not have time right. to guess, not to guess. And then the last one in the big category is, of course, sleep. And the way that I can say it is there's infinite sleep technology right now that'll tell you how you're sleeping, you know, how many hours you slept and it'll give you all these readiness scores and HRV. Um, but our tech is the only thing in the world that'll show you why you're sleeping that way. And so it's the most well-rounded, scientifically advanced, comprehensive sleep diagnostics that, that's available in the world. And so that has just been an absolute uh, game changer for our folks because it, it, it regulates so much physiology. So let's talk about that because you seem very excited about that and sleep is massive for everyone. So I'd love to, one, talk about the, the approach and maybe talk about the tech. Yep, sure. Uh, if you take something that like a classic wearable, they're gonna. Some of these are good, and some are bad. Aura is a good example. They've just released their V three, and uh, the previous versions were okay for things, pretty good for things like total sleep, and the time you went to sleep, and the time you woke up, and things like that. But they were not holding up scientifically for the sleep stages, so you couldn't trust you know, how many minutes of REM or deep sleep you were getting off of an aura ring before. Now the claim is with their new V3, they've changed their algorithms and that's better. And it honestly looks to be that case so far, but we'll have to wait for the studies to come out to confirm that. So what happens is they've got to match that up against full sleep study, um, what we call PSG. So polysonography, uh, actually EEG signals in your brain and things like that. And it's gotta be a separate organization. Um, but let's say, let's say it works. Um, because actually the numbers we've got on athletes, they look better now. Well, that's great. Um, the downside about any of that sleep tech, though, and the reason I'm saying order is because I, I generally do like it, actually. So I'm, I'm using this as support, not as a criticism, relative to almost everything else in the market for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Whoop has some benefits too, but 
The issue though is it's telling you you slept like shit. Okay, then what do I do about it? Sleep more. Well, that's great. (laughs) Maybe I can't because of my schedule or two, like I'm fucking trying asshole, but like I can't. So it's not particularly helpful. Um, What we have done is built something that is more comprehensive. So number one, if you look at why someone sleeps the way they sleep, it's a function of physiology. So what are your serotonin levels like? What are your melatonin levels like? What is your cortisol at different stages at night? So we've got to have a full comprehensive physiological analysis of that side of your life. And so we have built that out. So we, now we can do this with individuals and we can track them. Uh, kits we send to our house and we get saliva and, and urine and blood and we actually get a full physiological picture. And so we can check in or check out that this is a basic physiology problem. So you can lay there in bed all you want. You can take a cold shower. You can do all these things that I love. And you can listen to my good friend, Andrew Huberman, and he can tell you about doing yoga nidra and all this, but it's not going to matter if you're like, and I can say this, we have had, I don't know, 10% of the professional athletes in the last five months have come back with melatonin levels that are you know, 20 to 100x the upper end of the reference range. Is that from supplementation? So they're taking what they think is three to five milligrams of melatonin, which is a very standard, even low dose. Some folks will take 10 milligrams. So we'll do 15, which is kind of high. But the research is going to tell you even three milligrams is the same uh, as 10. So there's no real need to ex- exceed three to five milligrams. So they take that. But what they're actually not realizing and said this has been shown scientifically is the melatonin concentrations in your supplements can actually be five to 10 to a hundred to a thousand times actually what's labeled on the supplement. So these individuals are thinking they're popping three milligrams of melatonin at night. And the half-life of melatonin is typically like 60 to 90 minutes, which means half of it is metabolized, you know, in the first hour. So, so it should be gone by the morning. But when you're taking concentrations that are multitudes and orders of magnitude more than you think, that half-life just is not enough. And so it just begins to build and build and build. And so they wake up sedated, effectively. They use more stimulants. They go to more caffeine. They go to more nicotine. They go to things like um, nootropics. And they're like, oh, my energy's great. I feel fine. But then they get to bed at night and they can't sleep. And so it's more, more melatonin. And we have fixed so many sleep problems by simply removing the melatonin and getting that shit the hell out of the system. And all of a sudden, they... F- totally feel normal and very quickly they feel so what are some of the metabolic health stretches Syria? when where yeah so uh, yeah what is the cause what is the what is the the initiation yeah it's very complicated and this is where if somebody tells you um like carbs are the only reason for poor metabolic health or, um, you know, X, Y, Z, they're probably not truly understanding complex this system is because it's very multifaceted. So there are many different things that can cause the systems to start to deteriorate. And it could be one thing in isolation, or it could be a lot of things that are kind of um, building up. And so one thing that can happen is, of course, diet. And there are many then facets of diet that can drive this system to start to break down. Um, a lot of it is really just over consuming what our body needs. If we're providing too much energy, then we're kind of always 
redlining that system to be running. But if we're also providing inappropriate energy, that could be in the form of just really processed food, that could be in the form of where it's more carbohydrates that are appropriate to your diet. There's definitely not a one size fits all for carbohydrate threshold. Um, this can kind of start to deteriorate the system being sedentary, lack of muscle mass, which your audience probably doesn't have that problem. Um, but lean muscle tissue is extremely important and making sure that the system is running properly, you know, poor sleep, environmental toxins, air pollution, stress levels, stress levels alone can cause the system to go awry because then we're redlining the fact that we need glucose. We need energy because our bodies are stressed out. Um, so there are a variety of factors that can start to um, put some stress on the system and a little stress is okay sometimes just like exercise is stressful, but it's positive. Uh, so it's not kind of a happens one day or, you know, one week of bad behavior. It's a, a cumulative effect that starts to um, cause that system to sort of break down and, and have some detriments. Yeah. So when the system starts to break down, let's say we're pushing the system really hard, whether it be stress or calories or, or any of these things you mentioned, um, what is kind of the first indication at a cellular level? What tends to happen? Is, is it the cell becomes insulin resistant? Is it drops up inflammation? Is it oxidative stress? What are the kind of mechanistic uh, results of you know pushing the system, as you say? Yeah, often what happens first is that insulin levels start to rise. Um, and so if we think about insulin resistance, which is essentially that poor metabolic health, you can kind of use those terms interchangeably. Um, insulin resistance is essentially when we are not able, insulin is not able to do its normal function. So normally insulin is driving a lot of these glucose responses. It's driving a lot of these metabolic health responses. And I kind of think of insulin as, or insulin resistance as the boy who cried wolf. Um, so if we're constantly calling for more insulin, the body's going to give it, it's going to respond to it. But if we're constantly doing that, it starts to ignore that signal. Um, it starts to become a decreased sensitivity to that you know, crying wolf, that yelling. And so it's usually a combination of insulin levels start to rise. That's the screaming, we're responding, and then insulin sensitivity starts to go down. We're starting to ignore that signal. And when insulin sensitivity goes down, that's when we see glucose levels rise because insulin is no longer able to do its normal function, which is to put glucose where it needs to be, which is why those things are um, pretty closely related. Unfortunately, the technology doesn't yet exist to measure insulin in real time 24-7. Uh, trust me, there are people working on it, and we will definitely uh, be on that as soon as it's possible. But right now, you can kind of get the snapshot in time of your insulin levels of fasting insulin, um, those type of measurements. But glucose usually follows pretty closely. So typically what's happening is um, the, those insulin levels start to go up and then decrease insulin sensitivity. And a lot of times that decreased insulin sensitivity first starts to occur in the skeletal muscle and also our fat tissue, which is one reason that maintaining lean muscle mass, um, being physically active can really help consistently keep our insulin sensitivity um, fine-tuned and properly working. So talk to me about the difference. So you hear some practitioners kind of raving about, it's just about insulin levels. If your insulin levels are elevated, then this is the, this is the marker for deteriorating health. And other people say, well, insulin may be not as, as important. And it's just like, actually, where's your glucose regulation? So I'm curious how you kind of parse all that. Yeah. And I think that they are 
similar in the sense that usually when insulin goes up, glucose is also up and vice versa. Um, And so for ease of cost and the technology available, measuring glucose for most people is going to be simpler, cheaper cheaper and just as effective. But if we wanted to be in an ideal scenario, I think that insulin is most likely happening first. If there was the technology available to measure insulin 24 seven, I think that that would be superior slightly. Um, But I think that it's, they're so close that to me, it's kind of like, not a, a huge point of discussion that's worth kind of getting into the nitty gritty. By the time someone's insulin is high and by the time their glucose is high, uh, we usually want to be doing something about it. And we might catch one slightly before the other, but they're usually correlated um, pretty closely. And with that being said, you know, insulin right. and glucose are not an end all be all. There can be components of health that need to be improved um, and, you know, might have some issues and insulin and glucose might be fine. Uh, so, you know, there's also the people say like insulin is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that causes you to gain weight. It's the only thing that causes you to be unhealthy. And I don't think we can take it that extremely either. What else plays in? Yeah, I think just, I, you know, I, I will say, I think calories do play a role. This is a very controversial topic in the world of nutrition. Um, but I think it's important. Uh, it's, I don't think it's just insulin and I don't think it's just calories. I think calories matter more. Like you can do a calorie in calorie out type of approach. If you're very insulin sensitive, you know, if you think about all the arguments of the people who, who argue insulin and hormones versus calories in calories out, a lot of people on the calories in calories out tend to be, um, you know, like bodybuilders, I don't know what your viewpoint is on this, or they tend to be um, very fit and healthy and they're usually very insulin sensitive. So their body responds easier to the calories. Whereas somebody who's very insulin resistant, they might cut calories and it's not as effective because that system's broken at baseline. Yep. Uh, so I think we need to look at both and, and just kind of take the person into account rather than the blanket statements. Yeah. I'm very much of the same mind. So someone who's extremely muscled can actually eat significantly more calories and not put on any fat. Someone who is metabolically unhealthy, you could literally give them very little and they don't lose fat. And I've seen it happen like yeah. time and time again. So you're, you're totally right. And I think you're right. The people who are who are just shouting louder about just about the macros, they just don't get it, right? One day they'll get it and everyone will forgive them and it'll be okay. So looking back on, let's say, the last 30 years of your longevity journey, if you had done anything differently, what would it be? Uh, the last 30 years? Or, um, you pick a time frame. Well, but I mean, you know, because I could go back, I could go back 40 years and I could say, well, if I knew then what I know now about training, about diet, about nutrition, um, I, I, and I was an elite marathoner, if I'd known, I would have done things differently, um, like, or triathlon. If I had taught myself how to swim, uh, I would have been one of the best triathletes in the world. Um, but I wasn't willing to spend the time to do that. So I can go back and say, well, if I'd spent the time, I would have been one of the best in the world, but I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I've learned. So, so one of the things that I've, that I've learned over the years is there, is there is only feedback. There's no failure. And going back and saying I would do something different doesn't necessarily mean that it would have left you in a better place. Um, I am who I am today because of the mistakes I made more than because of the successes that I had. Uh, and over time, as you get, as you do get older, you are allowed to, to become successful by having accumulated. At some point, you can't just have 
you just can't be an accumulation of, of, of failures your whole life, right? You got at some point pull it, pull it together and be successful. But as you get older, some of the lessons that you learned now really come home to roost and you, and you're able to, to incorporate them and then move forward. But all of those things that I, that I, I keep every once in a while, I would say, geez, if I'd only done this, I could have, I could have run, you know, three minutes faster in the marathon, or I could have, I could have, you know, one Ironman. Okay. But you know, I'm pretty happy with where I am today. Right. And how about with respect to longevity practices, day-to-day practices? Is there any kind of glaring things you did along the way? You're like, God, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, outside of the extreme amounts of endurance racing, I'm sure you'd be like, yeah, that might not have contributed yeah, yeah, to longevity, no, I mean, but still a great I, benefit. Yeah. No, I, I feel like the body is so resilient that, that the path that I've taken over the past 20 years has corrected uh, many of the things that would have literally killed me if I kept doing them. I mean, I was, I wasn't, I, I had irritable bowel syndrome horribly until from the age of 14 to 47. It wasn't until I was 47 that I really understood what I was doing that was causing this IBS that ran my life, that literally ran and ruined my life. Um, and once I figured it out and I started on this path to uh, healing and recovery, um, everything was like, oh my God, this is like, how did I, how did I go as long as I did suffering that much? And, and, and even on a daily basis, one of my little gratitude exercises, almost on a daily basis, is remembering back to how bad things were and, and appreciating what I've done for myself in, in making those shifts and healing. So I had osteoarthritis in my 20s, which had I kept on that path, I would probably have, uh, you know, uh, joint replacements now, maybe a, maybe an ankle replacement, maybe a knee replacement, maybe a hip replacement. But I corrected, and I got to the point where I didn't. Not only did I not need those, some of those joints are the are the strongest parts of my body now. They're certainly stronger than they were in those days. Uh, so there's a the resiliency of the body is incredible, and probably my strongest message that I have for anybody who is watching this, who's read my books, is it's never too late to start to incorporate some of these, these changes, whether it's a dietary change, whether it's getting the right amount of sleep, whether it's, um, you know, mobility exercises, uh, whatever it is, it's, it's really never too late to, to reverse what would otherwise be a slippery slope downhill toward decrepit, old, infirm, immobile, uh, which is, you know, unfortunately what a large part of the population is facing right now. Yeah. So, what are some of the high impact habits that you implemented at that 47th year to really make a shift in the um, ultimately the stress? Well, so, yeah. So I'd already, I'd already done uh, years of writing about health and, and diet and I'd already, I'd already recognized how bad sugar was. So I kind of cut sugar out. I'd already recognized about uh, the, the inflammatory nature of industrial seed oils. I'd, I'd cut some of those out. Um, I had, uh, but I had uh, what I hadn't addressed was my um, particular uh, susceptibility to issues from grain. So when I cut grain out of my diet, uh, gluten in particular, wheat, um, it was transformative. It really, it really was like such a light switching on for me that it prompted me to start to think, "Wow, if I've been assuming that grains are good and that I've been." As, a, as an endurance athlete, I've been chowing down on 
a thousand grams of carbs a day for 30 years thinking I got a carb load, you know, between every, every day for the next workout the next day. And that grains are the cheapest, best, most effective source of carbs. Therefore, grains have to be good for me. Um, if, if I had, I, the fact that, that I was unwilling to look at what grains might be doing to me, um, suggested to me that there might be tens of millions of people like me who just assume, yeah, grains, they're, it's a, it's the base of the food pyramid. It's like the government has been promoting it for all these years. Why would you think? The government always has your best interest at heart. Of course. <laughs> so, so just that one little shift caused about an 85 to 90% reversal. And then the next shift came from incorporating um, in, in my case, uh, collagen supplementation. I started doing collagen peptides and I started doing it for my Achilles, but I noticed that my gut, uh, was, was healing even more like, like that last 10% yeah. uh, of my gut that needed to heal was, was responding, uh, well to collagen that put me on a, on a whole investigation toward, um, looking at collagen as maybe the fourth macronutrient, you know, we have fats, proteins, Carbohydrate and of the proteins, most people think of protein as muscle building, mm -hmm. but the largest source of protein in the human body is collagen. It's it's skin, hair, and nails. It's part of bones. It's uh, connective tissue. So it's fascia. It's ligaments. It's tendons. It's it's cartilage. It's all of this stuff that isn't muscle um, that needs um, collagen peptides to rebuild the raw material to rebuild this. And if we don't consume it in our diet. We tend to uh, lose the the stiffness, and we let, tend to that we they become uh, these these, um, these this soft tissue starts to um, diminish in in efficiency and effectiveness. I have tended less and less to focus on the I guess what you call the the status of the CNS or the status of the nervous system, whatever you'd like to call it, and then ask the follow up question of well, what put your nervous system in that state to begin with? And that ends up taking you to some antecedent environmental variable or some subvocalized language pattern. If you tell your, if you say you hate yourself over and over and over, you'll work yourself up. So then does that mean that I work on tuning my nervous system down or do I moderate the language pattern? Right. Do I? And so I, I care more like, what the hell got y'all worked up to begin with, Mr. Pakulski? And let's look at that shit. And I say that like with fervor, you know, right. because you, I see that as setting yourself up to win because you can figure out how to calm yourself down all you want. If you have an environment that contributes to it 24 hours a day, well, then it, it ends up creating, it ends up distracting from the issue and maybe developing, maybe you could develop another set of skills to moderate it better. Right. Does that follow? Yeah. Of course, take your hand off the burning stove. Don't try to med just meditate your way through it. Get it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> for um, sure. But, but potentially there's a lot of things that are causing your nervous system to be highly aroused, right? Like driving your car 70 miles an hour on a freeway with a bunch of people who may or may not be qualified to do so. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I got to do that sometimes. I can't always remove the the stressful stimulus. So 100%. Learning to, like, how do I, how do I mitigate this as much as possible? Seems like a, a good strategy. And for me, it's, like the, it's the exploration of 
uh, you know, like I said, the acuity of the of the experience, right? Rather than taking this, um, yeah, it's like it's dialing out um, so I can experience more aspects of this moment. And when I do that, the it seems, and I'd love to hear your opinion, opinion of this, it seems that, um, so if I'm experiencing all the sensory um, information in this moment, it, it, yeah, it allows me to put maybe less weight on the, the one thing that may have otherwise been overwhelming to me. So I don't know, like if I'm, if I'm sitting here listening to the cars go by or the birds chirp and I'm listening to all the birds chirp, that one that's kind of really close to my ear becomes less of an irritant. Yes. Fair enough. I'd love to hear your opinion. I mean, I say this cause I'm like, tell, tell me how you think about that. Well, I'll, I'll ask an irritating question and say opinion of what? So you gave me an example, or rather, I remembered an example from what you said. But what what do you want commentary on? Yeah, how do well? How do you feel about um, the the thought of changing potentially the sensory experience? Is that something that can influence outcomes, or do you like no? That really doesn't have an influence on your perception of the of the current set of information. Okay, okay, I see it as a ground zero to start generalizing. Basically, unless you can apply this in a stressful environment, it, it will have limited practical value. And so if you want to start with, okay, turn off all the lights, uh, and make it silent, you know, have a bowl of soup, and you know, have, a, have, a, have an orgasmic experience, great, okay? At that point, you want to start successively approximating. So hoping that this then translates or generalizes to other environments keeps it handicaps you. So if you do have a skill you want to learn in this case, so I'll, I'll stick to the literal aspect of this here, enjoying the food you eat and varying environments give you varying food enjoyment experiences. Well, then learning to enjoy your food in, in the environment that has the fewest distractions first, then sets you up to start regulating how much distraction you start adding on purpose. So ladies and gents, thank you for being here. I appreciate the time. I appreciate your ear. I appreciate your trust. I realize there's thousands and thousands, if not millions of podcasts out there now, and you continually choose this one. And I don't take that lightly. I hope to bring you, continuously bring you new and amazing and insightful, valuable information on how to ultimately live your greatest life in a body you love. So if there's some specific topic you want to hear from me, head over to Instagram and leave me a message. You can send me a DM. You can also leave us a review, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, or on Spotify, and tell us uh, what you want to know, which, who you want to hear us talk to, what put conversations you want to hear us have. And I don't ever want to continually have the same people over and over again. But, uh, you know, so I'm continuously looking for great guests to bring you the best information in the world. So ladies and gents, without further ado from me, uh, I really hope you enjoy the podcast. I really hope you're having an amazing day. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for making the time. Uh, it's truly an honor, truly a privilege to continue to be able to do this and bring you the best information from the world's brightest humans. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.